We are all, in a sense, religious people. We are all people who believe in the value of the scriptures. We believe in the value of church attendance, for example. We believe in the value of the sacraments. But none of those things gains us entrance into heaven. None of those things makes us righteous before God. Paul has been arguing that the righteousness we have to be accepted before a holy God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I'm delighted this morning to return to our study in the book of Romans. So take your Bible and be turning there to Romans chapter 4. We've made our way all the way to Romans chapter 4. And the title of the message this morning is simply this, Works Won't Justify. Works Won't Justify. Romans chapter 4, we just want to look at the first eight verses. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, picking up in verse 1. Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Please be seated and may God add his blessing to his word. Let us bow to him in prayer. Father, the testimony of your word is sure, so we pray that it would make wise the simple. We also know that the precepts of your word are right, and therefore we pray that they might rejoice our hearts. And we also know that the commandments of your word are pure. So we pray that you would help them to enlighten our eyes for your glory, for the sake of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, you know that in chapter 3 in our study of Romans, Paul has introduced to us the reality of God's saving righteousness in Christ. And the way that Paul has done that is by underscoring the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Really, the force of that argument in chapter 3 can be found in verses 21 through 31, where he reveals to us this concept of a righteousness that came from God, a righteousness that is not dependent in any way whatsoever on human merit. And Paul was clear, particularly in verse 21, that the law and the prophets, i.e. the Old Testament scriptures, bore witness or testified about this coming righteousness of God that obviously is found in the person of Jesus Christ. If you like, you can also quote Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That was the testimony and the prophecy of the Old Testament Scriptures. So now as we move into chapter 4, Paul is going to develop how the Old Testament has shown very clearly to us that salvation was always based on the saving grace of God. It had nothing to do with human merit. It had nothing to do with morality. It had nothing to do with good works. And Paul wants us to understand that this is no innovation on the apostles' part. No, a true understanding of the Old Testament is that it always pointed forward to what God planned to do in Christ before the foundation of the world and then at that first declaration of the gospel to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The reality is that a true Jew recognizes Jesus as the Messiah and therefore responds in faith to what Christ did in securing salvation for sinners. Now, in order to establish his argument, Paul chooses Israel's most illustrious patriarch, that is Abraham, the father of the faith, as well as David, Israel's most notorious king, as examples in the Old Testament of not only believers in the Old Testament, but believers that knew they were justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. If you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew gives a genealogy of Christ, and Matthew also points to Abraham and David as the physical ancestors of Christ according to the flesh. So Paul is picking out the two dominant figures in the Old Testament. And if he can prove that God acted in grace toward Abraham, that Abraham was in fact justified by faith alone, then Paul's point is established that works cannot justify. And further, if he can successfully prove that David, who we know was a man after God's own heart, but also was a notorious sinner, that in the midst of him being caught in his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, if in the midst of that, David rested in the doctrine of justification, then that double proves Paul's argument as evidence that if any sinner is to be saved, then it will only and always be by faith alone in the promises of God. This is a tremendously comforting and powerful portion of sacred scripture and this is what the great apostle sets out to do in chapter 4 he sets out to prove that salvation has always been by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone now just to give you sort of a summary of chapter 4 because we're going to be in it for the next two or three weeks Paul essentially makes three propositions first of all in verses 1 through 8 Paul argues that Abraham was not justified by works. And uh, the the theme verses are really verses 4 and 5, where he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So that's his first proposition. Abraham was not justified by works, but by faith. Secondly, in verses 9 through 12, Paul argues that Abraham was not justified by circumcision. And we read, for example, in verse 11, that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So salvation was not based on circumcision. Salvation was not 
based upon good works for Abraham. And then the third proposition is found in verses 13 through 17, where Paul simply argues that Abraham was also not justified by the law. Notice, for example, in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, it's interesting, and you may not remember this, but at the end of chapter 3, there were three questions that Paul asked. For example, in verse 27, Paul said, then what becomes of our boasting? Well, Paul answered that question there in verse 27. He said, it is excluded. But he also answers that question in verses 1 through 8. There is no room for boasting because Abraham was not justified by good works. Paul also asked another question in verse 29. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Well, in verse 11, he's going to answer that question again when he speaks about the fact that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness. And then he says in verse 12, to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And that third question in verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Paul says, by no means. He also answers in a longer form in verses 13 through 17, where he speaks about the fact, for example, um, in verse uh, 14, for it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. If that is true, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law where there is no transgressions. Verse 13, for the promise to Abram and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So I hope you can see that Paul is sort of saying the same things over and over and over again. And he essentially wants us to understand that salvation is always by grace. I hope you understand that this morning. We are all, in a sense, religious people. We are all people who believe in the value of the scriptures. We believe in the value of church attendance, for example. We believe in the value of the sacraments. But none of those things gains us entrance into heaven. None of those things makes us righteous before God. Paul has been arguing that the righteousness we have to be accepted before a holy God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you can walk away from all of these messages with that truth, that is enough truth to give you and gain for you eternal life and forgiveness of sins. It is the greatest news ever. That's why we call the gospel the good news. That's literally what it means. But now we're going to look today at just that first proposition in verses 1 through 8 where Paul simply argues that in the first analysis Abraham was not justified by works and by implication that means that you and I are not justified by works. Abraham is a model therefore that justification by faith alone has always been God's method of salvation and Paul proves it with three lines of reasoning to support that proposition. He gives a logical argument, number one. Number two, he gives a biblical argument. And uh, third of all, he gives a practical argument. So that's our outline this morning. First of all, to argue that works cannot justify us before God, Paul provides a logical argument. And we see it in verses 1 and 2. Notice your Bibles. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? 
For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Abraham begins, or I'm sorry, Paul begins with a very simple, logical argument that flows from what he said in verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting, it is excluded. In other words, there's no room for boasting, and Paul is saying there's, this is a very logical argument. So he asks that question in verse 1, notice the text again, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? Now, you might phrase that question this way. You might phrase it, did Abraham gain salvation by human effort in the flesh? Or you might ask it this way, was Abraham's gaining of justification before God based on his human fleshly powers? Of course, the answer is no. If you notice there in verse 1, the word flesh, it's the Greek word sarx. It's actually parallel with the word works in verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works... The works of the flesh. So the word flesh or sarks appears to be a reference to the human nature which is dominated by sin. And Paul oftentimes spoke about the human nature dominated by sin as the flesh. I can give you just a couple of examples in the book of Romans itself. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 5, Paul says, Those who walk according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh in contrast to those who live according to the Spirit who set their minds on on the things of the Spirit. That's the Apostle Paul writing just a few chapters later. In chapter 8, verse 13, again, for if you live according to the flesh, Paul says, you will die. If you live according to the works you do in the human nature, you will die. Now, he refers to Abraham in verse 1 as our forefather. Now, what exactly does he mean by this? Well, he actually means more than you might think. First of all, This obviously applies to ethnic Jews. Abraham was the physical father of the Jewish race. But there's another sense in which Abraham is our forefather, even if we are Gentiles, because if we have the faith of Abraham, Paul will argue in the book of Galatians, then he is our ancestor. We have descended from him in a spiritual sense. Paul will elaborate on this more in the book of Romans, but he touched upon it back in chapter 2 and verse 28 when he said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So when Paul speaks about Abraham as our forefather, he is the forefather of ethnic Jews. He is the forefather of all believers, Jews and Gentiles. But there's a third sense in which Abraham is the father of not just Jews, but also Gentiles, and perhaps you've not thought of this, but even in a physical sense, Abraham was father to Gentiles. For example, it was the Ishmaelites that descended from Ishmael, who was the first son of Abraham. Those were Gentiles. Not only that, but the Edomites descended from Abraham as well. The Edomites descended from Esau, that was Jacob's twin brother, and both of those boys were the grandsons of Abraham. So Paul's making a point here. In a qualified sense, Abraham really is the forefather of both Jews and Gentiles, a point that we should not quickly overlook because the ethnic Jew often boasted in his heritage, didn't he? He he often boasted in the fact that he had this wonderful lineage of religiosity. And Paul is telling this largely, I think, Gentile congregation as he writes this letter, that these Gentile Christians are not inferior to Jewish people in general. 
and nor Jewish Christians in particular, because nobody can boast before God, even a physical descendant of Abraham. That's why he said in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek in the final analysis. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. According to the promises, you are heirs. In fact, this was Paul's whole point in Philippians 3, was it not? He said as a physical Jew that he would glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then under that category of the flesh, he included many things, first of which was his descent from Abraham, his circumcision, his being a Pharisee, his being blameless in his adherence to the law. And Paul even says in Philippians 3, 4, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have far more room to boast. In other words, Paul says, if you want to get in a competition about this, let's get in a competition. Let's look at my life and your life. Let's see who can boast bigger in the flesh. And then Paul concludes in Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For what? For the sake of Christ. And so he asked that question, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What was it that Abraham did in his human flesh that gained him a right standing before God? And he answers it in verse 2. He says, for, notice your Bibles, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now follow this line of thinking. Paul knows that there was really no disagreement with any Jew concerning the fact that Abraham had gained something. In fact, Abraham had gained three things. Abraham had gained a righteousness. Every Jew believed that Abraham was righteous or a justified man. But Abraham also gained, and everyone was in agreement on this, an inheritance. For example, Genesis 15, 7, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give this land to inherit. I read it earlier. So everyone was in agreement that Abraham was given righteousness. Everyone was in agreement that Abraham was given an inheritance. And everyone was in agreement that Abraham was given a posterity. Genesis 17, 4, and thou shalt be the father of many nations, not just one nation. What there was a disagreement concerning, however, was how Abraham, the righteous man, received those three things, righteousness, inheritance, and posterity. The Jews believed that it was rooted in human merit on Abraham's part, not solely divine grace. In fact, they believed that it was because Abraham was righteous that that was the very reason God chose him to begin with, to be the father of many nations. They taught, for example, and now I'm quoting from the Jews, Abraham began to serve God at the age of three, and his righteousness was made complete by his circumcision and anticipation of fulfillment of the law. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that what the Bible teaches? We read in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham didn't even know who God was until he was a full-grown man. He was a pagan. Also reading from the prayer of Manasseh 8, the Jews prayed, Therefore thou, O Lord, God of the righteous, you have not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not sinned against you. You have only appointed repentance for us because we are sinners, but not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob. That's pretty heretical. And I could quote many other sources. I'll just give you one more because this one's important. The rabbis boldly would quote Genesis 15, 6, and they would teach that Abraham was actually justified by the human work of faith. 
For example, they said, our father Abraham became the heir of this world and the coming world by the merit of faith, the merit of faith with which he believed in the Lord. As it is written, he believed in the Lord who counted it to him as righteousness, quoting Genesis 15, 6. They viewed faith as a work. Now, that's not much different than Arminian theology. There are many today, and this came up in Sunday school, many people believe that it is a person's faith that activates the new birth. That's what Charles Finney believed. That appears to be many times what Billy Graham preached. That appears to be what many people teach, that it is our faith that activates the new birth. Nothing could be further from the truth. We would never have faith had we not been born again by the Spirit of God and God gave us that faith to demonstrate. But the Jews viewed faith itself not as a gift, as Ephesians 2.8 says it is, but as an act of human merit that God then rewarded to the person who had faith and said, you are righteous. So that's sort of the backdrop of why Paul says what he does in verse 2. He's stopping anyone and everyone in their tracks from believing such heresy. And he uses a very logical syllogism in verse 2. Now, a syllogism is simply a form of logical reasoning in which a conclusion is drawn from two premises. I'll give you a worldly example. Premise number one, I have a white dog named Lady. Premise number two, you come to my house and you see me call the name Lady and a white dog comes to me. Conclusion, that white dog who responded to the name Lady must be Pastor Andrew's dog. That's a syllogism. It's a logical way of thinking that if two things are true, it equals a conclusion. Now understand this is a hypothetical syllogism in verse 2 because notice your Bibles carefully. Paul says, for if Abraham was justified by works. Do you see that word if? It's very important. This is a hypothetical hypothesis. But Paul is going to quickly refute that Abraham ever had a chance of being justified by works. But he sort of plays their game. He says, premise number one, if a man is justified by works, he has ground for boasting. That's what he says when he says, for if Abraham was justified by works. If what you're saying is true, that a man is justified by works, then he has grounds for boasting. And then premise number two is sort of unstated, but it's implied, and that is that Abraham, the example that he uses, was in fact justified by works. So if one can be justified by works and Abraham was justified by works, then anyone can be justified by works. But Paul gives a different conclusion. He says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But, Paul says, not before God. In other words, the syllogism of logic that you are using is not true because it wasn't even possible for Abraham to boast before God because it wasn't possible for Abraham to be justified by works. And in the next verse, he's going to show proof of that by going to Abraham. But here in verses 1 and 2, the message is really the same of verse 27 of chapter 3. Turn back there. Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? And notice he says, underline this, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. It is a logical argument that he is making to simply say, it is not even possible to be justified by works. It is not possible to ever live up to the standard of God because his standard is 
perfection, perfection that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you believe in the active obedience of Christ. You were saved not merely because Christ died for you. You were saved because Christ lived for you. He lived a life you could never live. He never sinned in thought, word, or deed. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And Jesus could boast before God. But not you. Not me. Not Abraham. It's been well said that pride is the dandelion of the soul. Its roots go deep. Only a little left behind sprouts again. Its seeds lodge in the tiniest encouraging cracks and it flourishes in good soil. The danger of pride is that it feeds on your own perceived goodness. And what Paul is saying is stop for a moment and just think about what you are saying. If you are saying that it's possible to be justified by works, then nobody can be justified by works because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. So Paul's first line of reasoning is very simple. Abraham wasn't justified by works, and nobody is justified by works, and he bases this on a logical argument, a logical line of reasoning. But there's a second line of reasoning that Paul uses. He moves from a logical argument, number one, we see that in verses one and two, now to a biblical argument. And we see this in verse 3 and then in verses 6 through 8. Let me give you a quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, in this section of the epistle, Paul is going to bring forth exhibit A to prove his case. He doesn't do it by an abstract exposition of doctrine, but by a historical reconnaissance. He reaches back to the Old Testament, to the person of Abraham, who was known to the Jews as the father of the faithful. And what Paul does with Abraham is he shows that Abraham was justified by faith alone. So he's making his appeal to the Bible. This is a biblical argument. Now, I understand that all of Scripture is inspired, and Paul's words in verses 1 and 2 are inspired, just as much as they're inspired inspired in verse 3 and verses 6 through 8, where he quotes from the Old Testament. So maybe you could call this argument a canonical argument or a historical argument. But here's the point. Abraham and David were both justified by the righteousness of Christ. You say, how is that possible? Well, simple. Old Testament saints looked forward to the promised one, and New Testament saints look backward. But the theology of grace doesn't change regardless of uh, the timeline that you find yourself on, whether B.C. or A.D. The faith of Old Testament believers looked forward. The faith of New Testament believers looks backward. But the object is the same, Jesus Christ. And the instrument is the same, our faith. And the ground is the same, God's gracious promise. Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman who is Christ would crush the head of the serpent. Now, please note, Paul's biblical argument has two canonical witnesses. The first one is Moses in verse 3, because Paul quotes what Moses wrote in Genesis 15, 6. The second one is in verses 6 through 8, where Paul quotes King David, who wrote Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. So let's look, first of all, at Moses' witness to Abraham's justification. And since, as I said earlier, some perverted Genesis 15, 6 to say that Abraham's faith was considered a human merit done in the flesh to receive righteousness, Paul quotes it. Notice he says at the beginning of verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Now, let me just stop right there for a moment. I love this. 
This is like Paul saying, get your Bible and open it. Let's see what God says on this issue. You know, from time to time, people will ask me, how in the world do you have so much to say in one sermon? You just talk and talk and talk and talk. Well, I would have nothing to say if this was a Rotary Club meeting or this was a PTA meeting. In fact, I'd rather just stay at home. But this church has a mission, and the mission is to know what the Bible says, and my duty is to tell you what the Bible says. Thus saith the Lord. I'm not interested in opinions or conjectures. I'm interested in propositional truth. And it may sound antiquated these days to say that I go to a Bible-believing church, but I quite like that. Because I would just ask the question, what kind of other church is there but a Bible-believing church? Paul was a Bible-believing Christian, And so he says, for what does the scripture say? Where's your Bible? Get it out and I'll prove this to you. Now Spurgeon used to say that there's enough dust on some of your Bibles to write the word damnation. And you say, well, pastor, I'm widely read. Let me impress you with my library. Great. But how much time do you actually spend reading the Bible? Because the Bible is the most important book of all. And Paul underscores that for what does the scripture say? And now he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Notice verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, let's just start with that first little phrase. Abraham believed God. But for Abraham to believe God, God had to sovereignly pursue Abraham, right? If you remember, and we won't go into detail, I'll just sort of give you a summary, but God found Abraham. He was the son of Terah, who was an idolater. Abraham was reared in paganism. In Ur of Chaldea, which was located in Mesopotamia on the Euphrates River, and the Chaldeans had some 300,000 people. They were polytheistic. They believed in a multiplicity of gods. In fact, there were millions in the world at this time. During Abraham's day, and yet God chose him. God called him in Genesis chapter 15. In fact, take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, because the author of Hebrews speaks about Abraham, beginning in verse 8 of Hebrews 11. He says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she was considered him, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. So God's pursuit of Abraham was sovereign, and God's promise to him was unconditional. He had faith, but he only had faith because God revealed himself to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will dishonor those who dishonor you. I will curse those who curse you, and in you All the families of the earth will be blessed. And so what did Abraham do? He had faith. He journeyed to a strange land of Canaan that was occupied by people, you can imagine, who didn't welcome the idea of being conquered. So he had some level of faith, but he didn't have as much faith as you might think, nor was his life marked by perhaps the righteousness that you might think. 
He started the journey in half obedience. God told Abraham to go, and Abraham said, well, I guess I have the authority. Nephew Lot, why don't you come with me? That wasn't what God commanded him. He was 75 years old when he started that journey, and he comes uh, to a famine in Canaan. And so he goes to uh, Egypt, and we see him compromising the integrity of his marriage by lying that his pretty wife, Sarah, was his sister. Not exactly something a man of faith would do, not something that a righteous man would do. And through all of this came the repeated promises. And Abraham did believe God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, but it wasn't perfect faith. We can hardly commend Abraham for his faith or his righteousness. In fact, when Sarah was physically too old to have kids, what did Abraham do? He went to Hagar. He didn't trust God. He was not only guilty of committing adultery, but he was also guilty of not trusting God, not taking God at his word, because God said that it would be Sarah who would mother his heir. And God, even on one occasion in Genesis 15, I read it earlier, took Abraham outside and he said, Abraham, look at all the stars. That, that's all the descendants you are going to have. And over and over, God promised and promised and promised, trust me. And you remember that little incident? It was a smart aleck little incident where Sarah giggles in the tent at the idea that God could allow her to conceive a baby at her age. I would not say this is a life of strong faith. I wouldn't say this is a life of a man who was righteous in and of himself. Soon enough, as you well know, Isaac came, the heir was born, and Abraham at least was willing to follow through with God's command to sacrifice Isaac, even though it was his only son, even though it was the one that was promised to him and he had been waiting for. In fact, turn back to uh, the book of Hebrews because it, it, we do need to be fair with Abraham. He did have a level of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, again now in verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did not, or he did receive him back. So we'll give credit where credit is due, but let's also be honest. This is a history in Abraham's life of wishy-washy faith at best in believing in the promise of God. So it's not so much that Abraham's faith moved God to say, wow, look at your faith. What a, what a glorious human achievement. Now I'm going to declare you righteous. And that is exactly why Paul quotes Genesis 15. Abraham's belief, notice verse 3, was counted to him as righteousness. That is a key word. It was counted to him as righteous. This can't mean that his faith was a righteous act. It means that God counted for righteousness that which Abraham appropriated by faith, namely the righteousness of Christ. Because the key word in verse 3 is the Greek word, which is translated counted, but it literally means considered or reckoned. It's the Greek word elegeste. Elegiste comes from lagezomai. It's often used to describe what one on their own doesn't really have, but what one is considered to have or reckoned to have. And what does Abraham not have in and of himself? Righteousness. 
But to Abraham is ascribed or imputed the righteousness that he himself doesn't possess that is found in another, namely Jesus Christ. That is the meaning of verse 4. And we could quote John eight fifty six: Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, says Jesus. He saw it and was glad. So Abraham's faith was not some righteous act that activated his status as a righteous person. Oh no, far from it. Abraham received a righteousness that wasn't his, that was appropriated by the instrument of faith. That's all Paul is saying. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this in verse 6, he says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, reckoned to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. You say, when in the world did God preach the gospel to Abraham? Well, Paul says, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That was a preaching of the gospel because he was saying that from your seed will come the Messiah over which Jesus will reign. All of these nations who come by faith So then, Galatians 3, 9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So he certainly had faith. But righteousness was graciously counted to him because of the righteousness of another, namely the righteousness of Christ. So that word counted in both the Hebrew and the Greek in verse 4 is actually a banking term. It means to place money in someone's account. So the righteousness that Abraham had put into his account by God was an alien righteousness that gave him a status of no longer being a poor, destitute sinner, but being clothed with the righteousness of Christ and the riches of God's grace. As Leon Morris clarifies, and I quote, Paul is not saying that because sinners cannot produce good works necessary to merit salvation, that is, their own righteousness, that God allowed them to substitute faith as an easier option? No. He's saying, according to Scripture, that God gives salvation freely and that faith is simply the means whereby we receive the gift. In fact, in Romans 10.10, Paul puts it this way, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. As John MacArthur says, and I quote, faith is never the basis or the reason for justification. Did you catch that? Faith is never the reason or the basis for justification. Faith is only the channel through which God works his redeeming grace. Faith, MacArthur says, is simply a convicted heart reaching out to receive God's free and unmerited gift of salvation. And Paul proves that by going to Abraham and quoting Moses like an Old Testament witness. But he gives a second witness, and we're going to skip over verses 4 and 5. We'll come back to them. But I want us to go to verses 6 through 8 because Paul moves from the Old Testament witness of Moses, now in verses 6 through 8, to the Old Testament witness of David. Notice your Bibles in verse 6. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And now he quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So now we look to David as a witness. Now Paul 
If you remember in my introductory sermon on Romans, I I spoke about the fact that he trained under a man by the name of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was part of the Hillel tradition um, that uh, had seven principles of interpretation. One of those principles of interpretation formulated by Hillel was the principle called the analogy. And here here is the, the principle. It's Any two texts in the Bible with the same word being used needs to be interpreted the same. Well, what do we see in verse 4? We see the word counted. That's a quotation from Genesis 15, 6. And what do we see in verse 8? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's a quotation from Psalm 32. So both Genesis 15, Moses, Psalm 32, David, use the word counted or reckoned. So Paul is saying, let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 32, and what do we find? Notice verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. In other words, Paul is simply saying it's not just Moses in Genesis 15, it's also King David in Psalm 32 that teaches justification by faith alone, where God counts righteousness to us, to our account, He considers us something we aren't. We're not righteous, but he considers us that. He puts money into our account. And David calls it here a blessing. See that in verse 6? Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And it's not just for himself, but notice of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. In Psalm 32, David is speaking about justification by faith. Now watch this. David, in the darkest hours of his life, and I'm talking about even darker hours than when he was being chased down, when he was hiding in caves, the darkest hours of his life was when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, Because of his egregious sins, one, adultery with Bathsheba, and two, the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, which was a cover-up job because he sent Uriah on the front lines of battle to die. What did David believe in that moment? What did David believe in that moment of despair? He believed in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He believed that it, it's not what I do or don't do that earns God's favor. It's a righteousness outside of myself. So notice in verses 7 and 8, Paul quotes David in Psalm 32. Blessed, David says, are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. I mean, David is, is rejoicing in the fact that as bad as his sins were, they've been forgiven, they've been covered. Verse 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I mean, you've got to see this. If you turn back to Psalm 51, I know you're familiar with it. This is where David confesses his sins of adultery and murder to God. Verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wipe them clean. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
For example, verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Why did David pray that? Because David knew that he had the status of being a righteous man in spite of the fact that he had committed these sins. And so it says, God, please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me because I know I belong to you. And then again in verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. Don't hold me guilty. I mean, I have blood on my hands from killing Uriah, but don't hold me guilty. Consider me innocent. Consider me righteous because you've declared me righteous. And then he says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You see, David was resting in the doctrine of justification by faith alone even in the midst of his darkest hours. And really, verse 7 of Psalm 32 that's being quoted here in Romans 4 is parallel. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. That's parallel to whose sins are covered. What are lawless deeds? Lawless deeds are sins that have violated God's holy law. And what does it mean to be forgiven? Well, it means that our sins are covered. Our sins are put out of God's sight. One of my favorite verses to give on Lord's Day mornings for the assurance of pardon is Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. And then we read in verse 8, David's words, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. See, sin is not counted or imputed to our account. That's what David says. And that's just another way of saying what Moses said in Genesis 15, 6, quoted in verse 4, that righteousness is counted to our account. You see, those are two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, through faith as an instrument, we are counted righteous in God's eyes, even though we aren't. But God gives us Christ's righteousness in our bank account so we can stand before God as a rich man, not a poor sinner. And on the other hand, Because our sins are, or because we are counted righteous in God's sight, on the other hand, our sins, verse 8, are not counted against us. They're two sides of the same coin. Both have to be true and both are true. No blessing is earned. The blessing of salvation is given. Faith is not a substitute for good works. Righteousness is given, the righteousness of Christ, and sin is is taken away and not counted against us by God's grace. Faith is just the instrument to receive the gift of righteousness. It's, as verse 6 says, apart from works. Because as Paul said in verse 2 of our text this morning, nobody can boast before God. Nobody can boast before God. So the blessing of salvation is not just David's or Abraham's. It's also ours. Notice again that language, verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Verse 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's not just that Abraham and David were saved by justification. It's that we are saved by justification through faith alone, in Christ alone. I quoted earlier Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3. Do you realize that four times in those two verses... God tells Abraham, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is the sovereignty of God. 
You can't do anything to earn your salvation. You can't do anything to activate the promises of God. It's a free gift. He says, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will bless you. I will curse those that curse you. I will dishonor those who dishonor you. And he uses the word bless or blessed five times in Genesis 12. And what does David do here in verses 7 and 8? Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Verse 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. The greatest blessing that ever existed is the blessing of the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And you know what? If that doctrine were not true, I wouldn't dare to stand up here and declare anything from God's word because I would immediately be disqualified and so would you. The only thing that sometimes keeps us going in the Christian life is the reality I'm really not who I should be and who I ought to be, but at least in God's eyes, He considers me righteous. Therefore, I can get up in the morning and I can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, seek to obey Him and seek to honor Him, knowing that even when I fail, I can rest like David did in the righteousness of Christ. We're not justified by good works. We're not justified by morality. We're not justified by keeping some law code. We're not justified because other people think we're religious. And anyone who believes that doesn't understand the gospel. And any sinner that has pride and wears it as a badge as if they have done something to earn salvation probably isn't a true believer. Because pride is not the mark of a true child of God. Humility is. I love the story of the Scottish man who was um, a prize fighter and a gambler. Pretty rough life. But by God's grace, he was saved. He became a fervent soul winner and preacher. And on one occasion before a large crowd, just before he got up to preach, he's sitting on the platform. Someone walks up and hands him an envelope. So he opens the envelope. There's a piece of paper inside. He unfolds it. And there was a long list of sins and crimes that he had committed in the very city that he was preaching in that day. He said at that moment, his better judgment told him to just run away, (laughs) not stand up and preach, because how could you preach as a sinner? But instead, when he got up to preach, he read off every sin and every crime publicly. And after each one, he said this, I am guilty. Then he'd read the next one. I am guilty. At the end of it, at the conclusion, he said to the crowd, how dare I speak about righteousness and truth? How can I? And then he said this. I'll tell you. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am am chief. The Apostle Paul was perhaps the most humble man who ever lived. But before God's grace got a hold of him, he was the most prideful man. Philippians 3, Pharisee, Hebrew, tribe of Benjamin, I adhere to the law. He was killing Christians because in pride he thought he could earn salvation with God. And here he is in Romans saying, look, I had it all wrong. And maybe you're here this morning and you're a religious person and you've made a profession of faith, but you're trusting in your baptism or you're trusting in church membership or you're trusting in some sort of 
religious heritage or maybe someone in your family is a preacher or, or maybe you've raised your kids and, and they're good, moral, upright people and you pay your taxes and you've never committed a crime. But let me just tell you, if you're not looking to Christ and resting in Christ, there's no hope for you after you die. There's only salvation for those who find salvation in Christ. There is only salvation for those who are clothed in His righteousness because being clothed in His righteousness can absorb even the worst that God could give, even in those times of discipline. Ultimately, we cannot be touched or harmed because Jesus Christ is our advocate. And this is the line of reasoning that Paul uses. He gives a logical argument to say that we can't be justified by our works. He gives a biblical argument or a canonical argument, a historical argument. But third, he also gives a practical argument. And we'll close with this. Notice in verses 4 and 5, Paul draws a practical contrast to make his point. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is a contrast between works and grace, is it not? He says in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, Paul's saying, If man is justified by works, then his wages are really not a gift, but what he is owed, right? I mean, when you receive your paycheck, do you view that paycheck as a gift? Now, if it's an unexpected bonus or something, maybe it is a gift. But your regular weekly paycheck, do you view that as a gift? Or do you view that as something you earn? Well, you should view it as something you've earned. And the reward is the wage that you receive for your labor, for your work that was agreed upon in a contract or stipulations and policies of the company or, or whatever. And that's easy enough to understand. Paul's saying it, it can't be by works because if it's by works, then your wages aren't a gift. It's what you're due. Are you prepared to say that God owes you salvation? I don't think so. But here's his contrast, verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, Paul's saying in the arena of salvation, it's the one who does not work but believes in Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's the one who receives the gift of Christ's righteousness. It's not what you earned, it's what Christ earned for you. And it's not that God justifies the godly. Dare we not say that Abraham was godly when God met him or righteous? And dare we say that any of us were? Notice he says in verse 5, not that God justifies the godly. No, God justifies the what? The ungodly. And then the instrument of faith then is used for God to consider us or reckon us or count us as righteous. That is a deal for the ages. You don't have to work and you receive the best gift and reward imaginable. The righteousness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. God imputed or counted our sin against Christ on the cross. And in exchange, 
he counts or considers us righteous? That's the great exchange. Christ satisfied the demands of the law because he fulfilled it perfectly. He satisfied God's justice by dying as a substitute in our place. He paid the penalty and therefore we are pardoned. Nothing, either great or small, nothing, sin or no, Jesus did it all, did it all long, long ago. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing, all was done long, long ago. An old story tells how a rich king gave his little son a silver arrow to carry with him wherever he went. And of course, this son was a prince, and of course, this story is a legend. It's not really true. But when the son, the prince, started to do wrong, the arrow would prick him and make him bleed. And he didn't like that. So one day he left his little arrow at home and he went around town and caused all sorts of havoc because the little arrow was not pricking him. He couldn't wait to get back home so that that arrow could prick him again so he would know how to live rightly. And there is a sense in which God, in his wise love, gives us his law to keep us from sorrow, to keep us from sin, to to guide us in in the way of righteousness, to, to guide us in the way of happiness. In fact, the word blessed literally could be translated happy. It's, it has the idea of God's smile upon you. And God's law is a good thing. God's law is a gift because it shows us where we are wrong and how we have violated God's law. But listen to me this morning. If you don't hear anything else, apart from Christ, we will never live up to that law. We need justified. We need declared righteous. We need an alien righteousness that's outside of us, extra nos. Because works will never, ever justify anyone except for the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise be to God, we can stand as sinners who have been considered, declared righteous. We've had his righteousness imputed to us. Our bank account is full. And therefore, in worship, we stand before him and glorify him in humble adoration. Asking him, make us holy, make us obedient to your law, make us like Christ. But God, don't ever, 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 ever allow me to be tempted to think that I am who I am in your sight because of what I did. It's because of what Christ did. Works will not, cannot, ever justify. Praise be to God. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.